this week is the country of Finland. Anybody know where Finland is? It's one of those way up north there, right? And uh, so be in prayer for the country of Finland, um, part of the northern part of Europe up there, uh, population about five, almost five and a half million, and a very predominant Lutheran. Um, and so uh, a need for the gospel there in the country of Finland and uh, really all of those Scandinavian countries up there, uh, predominantly Lutheran and things, so be in prayer for uh, Finland this week. And then our missionaries of the week, we have uh, Terry and Maria Burkham. They are missionaries in Mexico, and the Burkhams have been missionaries in Mexico for many years. Brother Terry's been down there uh, for many, many years, uh, working way back up in the mountains with um, some of the Mexican Indians and things there, and so um, just be in prayer for the for the Burkhams. And then also we have John and Lindsay Edwards. Uh, the Edwards and their family are missionaries in Australia, and Brother John and uh, his wife there, um, I, I want to say for close to about 20 years or so they've been, I believe, there in Australia, and uh, so continue praying for them uh, and their ministry, and uh, if, if I'm not mistaken, are they back on furlough? Yeah, I believe they're back on furlough right now, and uh, so be in prayer for them as they travel on furlough and um, travel around there, all right? Um, so remember the missionaries and our country of the week, okay? Um, all right, well, let's, um, am I missing something? Oh, yeah, I am missing something. Um, many of you that have been in the church for a while, um, you know uh, Phyllis Buzzard, and uh, we got a letter from uh, Phyllis's daughter, uh, Susan, and Phyllis is having her 90th birthday on the 14th of December. And um, they're asking if we'd be willing to send, do like a card shower. She's sending it out to different friends and um, people like that. And so she's asked our church, uh, if uh, folks in our church that knew her or just would like to encourage her, would be willing to send her a card and just wish her a happy 90th birthday. And uh, she's at the Brookhaven Retirement Community in Brookville. But we'll post the, the address um, on the church Facebook page there. Um, but they're wanting to um, just kind of send her a bunch of birthday cards and things like that for her 90th birthday. And so I uh, just want to make mention of that, especially for those of you that know Phyllis and uh, her and George uh, were members here for, for many, many years. And then George passed away and then Phyllis moved over uh, closer to her, her daughter. Um, but uh, just a sweet, uh, sweet lady. And uh, that'd be a, I know that'd be such an encouragement and a blessing to her. So we will post uh, that, uh, her address uh, on the church uh, private page there, and uh, if you'd like to send her a card, just a birthday card or something, uh, I know she would really uh, be encouraged by that, and that'd be a blessing to her. All right. Um, I knew there was that. I feel like I'm forgetting something else. Is there something else I'm... Is that it? What do I normally do? <laughs> Is that all? Okay. I guess that's it. Um, all right, so let's go. Um, last week, we had a couple of really good questions that were asked, and one particularly uh, from the book of Numbers, chapter 5, um, about what some people refer to as the law of jealousy in Numbers, chapter 5. And uh, the question was brought about because um, someone was trying to use this passage uh, that this uh, Miss Don was talking to someone, and uh, they were trying to use this passage as a way of showing that um, God basically approves of abortion, um, and they're trying to show this passage. Um, it's very interesting as I, I tried to study this passage out. There's actually, and again, there's lots of different versions of Bibles out there. There's no doubt about that. But there's actually only one version that translates it as a miscarriage. All the other versions do not translate it as a miscarriage. And that version was actually only put out in 2010. So figure that, right? Um, this version was put out in 2010. It's the NIV, the New International Version, the 2010 edition. And that is the only version that actually translates it as this miscarriage, what, this, what these terms are. 
None of the other versions, obviously the King James doesn't, but I was interested to see what some of the other versions did as well. None of the other versions translated as a miscarriage. It's only that one version, um, and uh, it's very interesting to see how, uh, of all the versions that are out there, how they'll grasp onto one thing that no, nothing else, none of the else, none of them say it, but just they find one that says what they want it to say, and, and they'll run with that. And so in Numbers chapter 5, again, we're not going to read the whole passage here, um, but did anybody, any do, anybody do any type of, uh, go back and look at this at all over this past week? Anybody? Nobody? One? You're just like, Pastor, you're going to do it, so why should we, right? You know? So, all right. Don, did you do some too? Right. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, again, that's one of the reasons why it's very important which Bible version you use, uh, because they're not all the same. Uh, there's a lot of mistakes and errors and many others. Um, and, um, you know, you have to be, you have to be careful about that. Um, Ross, you pick up anything? You said you kind of... Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yeah. So basically, um, if you go to Numbers chapter 5, um, and verse number 12, it says, Speaking to the children of Israel and saying to them, If any man's wife go aside and commit a trespass against him, and a man lie with her carnally, and it be hid from the eyes of her husband, and be kept closed, and she be defiled, and there be no witness against her, neither she, uh, neither she be taken with the manner, and the spirit of jealousy come upon him, and he be jealous of his wife, and, uh, and she be defiled, or if the spirit of jealousy come upon him, and he be jealous of his wife, and she be not defiled, then shall the man bring his wife unto the priest, uh, he shall bring her offering uh, for the tenth part of an ephah of barley meal, he shall pour no oil upon it, nor put frankincense thereon. For it is an offering of jealousy, an offering of memorial, bring iniquity to remembrance. So again, just I'm not going to read the whole passage here, but the man brings the woman before the priest, um, and there is an oath that basically the priest uh, basically says, um, and there's some other things that go into it. We're not going to go into it all, but in 19, the priest shall charge her by an oath, and say unto the woman, If no man have lain with thee, and if thou hast not gone aside to uncleanness with another instead of thy husband, be thou free from this bitter water that causeth the curse. But if thou hast gone aside to another instead of thy husband, and if thou be defiled, and some man have lain with thee beside thine husband, then the priest shall charge the woman with an oath of cursing, and the priest shall say unto the woman, The Lord make thee a curse and an oath among thy people when, um, when the Lord doth make thy thigh to rot and thy belly to swell. This water that causeth the curse shall go into thy bowels to make thy belly to swell and thy thigh to rot, and the woman shall say, Amen, Amen. So again, th- what this other version is, is doing is taking that where the thigh to rot and the belly to swell, and basically saying that's, that's a miscarriage, right? In other words, this woman is pregnant, and, and when she drinks this water, then it causes uh, this miscarriage to happen, right? Um, and again, we, we kind of talked a little bit about this last week. Uh, first of all, nowhere in the context here does it ever refer to a pregnancy, right? It's not referring to a pregnancy. It's not saying this woman is pregnant. It is simply saying that this, uh, this woman is, the husband has thought that the, the wife has been unfaithful, uh, has committed adultery, had this extramarital uh, relationship, and so therefore she is being brought. Nowhere in the passage at all does it ever indicate any type of pregnancy or miscarriage, okay? Uh, again, that's Again, a newer translation, uh, 2010 edition, trying to put something in here that the Bible never clearly says. In fact, when you actually look at the Hebrew words of the thigh to rot and the belly to swell, guess what it means? It means the thigh to rot and the belly to swell. That's what it means. It does not mean miscarriage, right? Now, there are some commentators that will try to say miscarriage, but that's not what the words mean. The words do not mean a miscarriage. It simply means that, uh, and again, as, as we, we're going to look into this, basically what happens, if the woman was found guilty, in other words, if God knew that she had committed this adulterous relationship, then what would happen is she would basically be infertile. She would not be able to have children, okay? Um, and, and that was the consequence of this extramarital act, this adultery, okay? Um, 
And so again, to, to try to, to twist scripture to say this is now saying that God condones abortion, one is really, really a stretch, right? Um, but even to say that this has to do with a miscarriage is not, it's not biblically accurate. It's not in the context here um, because it's not uh, dealing with a pregnancy. It's dealing simply with um, a sexual relationship outside of the marriage bounds, which is adultery, okay? But now, as, as I began to study this, I really began to, it really, uh, it really piqued my interest about this. And um, <clears throat> it really is kind of fascinating when you look at some of the laws that God put into place, you, you, you sit back and you say, okay, why did God put this into place? What's the purpose here, right? So think about this, okay? You have a man that is uh, accusing his wife of having uh, adultery, committing adultery with somebody, right? W- what is the purpose of this law? Think, think with me. Again, let's, let's, not, let's not just rush to judgments and things, right? But let's, let's really kind of think this through. What would be the purpose of this law? Because I know where everybody, I, I believe I know where all of our minds go to, and I think it's wrong. What would be the purpose of this law? Yeah, Miss Janet. Oh. Oh. Did you study this out too? Yeah, that's, that's really good. So for so many, so many times, what we do is we automatically think, oh, the woman has committed adultery and so that the law is against the woman. Wrong. The law is not against the woman. The law is for the woman. Not against the woman. The law is actually there to protect the woman. You say, well, that doesn't sound like much protection. Oh, yes, it was. It was huge protection. Because, ju- yeah. Mm-hmm. What made me go there is because I know God is not a law. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, it's, and, and this, is, this is what, looking at, understanding the law totally nullifies the whole idea of abortion and miscarriage. Because in this, God is trying to protect the innocent. Now, how can you get much more innocent than a a baby? You can't get any more innocent than a baby, right? And so here, this law, God places this law in not for, hey, the husband say, look at me, I can take you to court anytime. No, 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 no. It's not for him. It's to protect her. It's for her protection, Right, because here's the thing, and just like what Miss Janet was saying, in in that culture, and even in that culture, uh, in the Middle Eastern culture, even today, women have no rights. Right, they have they have no rights at all. Now, again, think about it. Where was Abram taken from? Where did God call him out from? Ur of the Chaldees. Where is Ur of the Chaldees? It's in the Middle East. Right, it's in the Middle East. Right. And so God calls Abram out of the Ur of the Chaldees where they have these laws that are not to protect women, right? Where, hey, if I don't like you, I can, I can get rid of you. If I think that you've done something, I, like she said, they could go out and have her, have her killed, right? That they have no rights at all, right? Um, and, and this is what's really amazing. People talk about, well, you know, uh, you know, Christians are against women's rights and Christians are against people's rights. God is more for people's rights than anybody. To say that somehow Christians are against people's rights, that Christians are against women's rights, they've never read the Bible. God is always trying to protect people. No matter if it's men, women, children, he's always trying to protect them, right? And especially when you have the nation of Israel coming from a culture that that was taught that women are, are really just objects. They're, they're not really that important. Well, you come from that culture, you come out of there, and all right, so by the time that you go down into Egypt, how many people do you have as the nation of Israel? 70. 
Big nation, right? 70. 70 go down into Egypt. That's what happens with Joseph. There's, uh, Joseph is already there. Then you have his brothers and Jacob. Uh, and they go down. There's about 70 Israelites now, right? Woo! And they go down into Egypt. Well, guess what the Egyptian culture is? The same as the Middle Eastern culture. Women don't have rights. It's, it's not about the women. It's all about men. Okay? And again, this is why it's so important for Christians to go back. What is the foundation? What does the Bible teach? God said, yes, God created the man first, and God says the husband is to be the head of the home. But remember, God gave him the wife to be an help me, not to be a slave. She's there to be a helper, to be an assistant, to, to, there to work together to bring glory to God, not for her to do all the work for him. Let's, let's get back to what the Bible says, right? That's what God says. So you have Israel coming from two different cultures where Abram coming from the Ur of the Chaldees, then they come out of Egypt where the culture has been women are, are not really important. Women are just objects. So they come out of Egypt where for now for 400 years they've been around all of this indoctrination of how the, the culture is. And guess what happens? Now God is trying to give them laws. Where do you think, why, why do you think there was the, the law where, um, and, and even in the New Testament, this is asked about it as well, about this issue of divorce. Where did this even come from? From these cultures that they came out of, right? And this is why God had Moses put the law in here and said, look, you just, you just can't divorce anybody for any reason, right? You just can't, well, she burned the biscuits, psh, divorce her, right? She didn't have the house cleaned, divorce her right? She didn't, she didn't have my supper ready and hot when I got home, divorce her because that's what the culture of the day was. Women were just treated as objects, right? And the same thing, even in marriage, they were treated as objects that there wasn't love. It was, it was just an object, right? And so God is trying to help them understand that this is wrong. That mindset is wrong. You say, well, it's culture. It's wrong. If culture goes against the Bible, then culture is wrong. Now, not all culture is wrong. That's not what I'm saying. But when it goes against the word of God and goes against scripture, it's wrong. The word of God has to prevail, right? So here you have a culture and a mindset where not only divorce, but even, hey, if I even suspect, and, and this is what's really interesting. What is this, what is this passage known as? I, I mentioned it a minute ago. It's called the law of what? Of what? Jealousy. The law of jealousy. Well, who's the one that's jealous? It's not the wife. The husband. The husband's jealous, right? You know what the Bible says about uh, a husband's jealousy or a man's jealousy? In Proverbs, in chapter 6, in verse 34, it says, For jealousy is the rage of a man. Therefore, he will not spare in the day of vengeance. Guys can become very jealous, and when they become jealous, they lose their minds. Amen. That's the truth, right? When we get so jealous, what happens? We don't think straight. We lose all rationale, and we have one desire. We want to hurt someone. Sorry, ladies. That's just the way, that's the way men are. Now, I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying that's the way it is. Okay? I'm just being real here this evening with you. Okay? That's the way men are. When we are jealous, everything else falls, loses sight, and we just we, we go into a rage. Okay? That's why he says here, jealousy is the rage of a man. Therefore, he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will not regard any ransom. Neither will he rest content, though thou givest many gifts. It's very hard to pacify jealousy, right? So think about it. It's interesting. It's the law of jealousy. What has happened? This man has gotten in his mind somehow that his wife has committed this adultery. And he is jealous. Well, what would happen in that day if a man was jealous? She could be beaten. She could be killed. She could, whatever, whatever the men wanted because of the jealousy of the man. 
And so God, knowing the jealousy of men, knowing the culture and the, th- and the society they're living in, God says, hey, wait a second, that's not right. This woman needs to be protected. And so God brings in this law. And this law, this, uh, again, it was not a remedy, uh, it wasn't a remedy for an unwanted pregnancy. That's not what this was, right? This was a test for adultery, okay? And, and this is what's really fascinating about this, right? Do you know nowhere in Scripture does this law ever say that it was ever done? Nowhere in Scripture do we have any record of anyone actually doing this law. You say, well, then why was it there? It's a good question. Why is it there? Exactly what we've been talking about. To protect the innocent. In other words, you better think twice about what you're doing here before you do it. You can't just fly off the handle and do whatever you please. God has instated these laws. Because again, think about this. This was going to be a public event. So everyone would know. Where is it done? It's done at the gates of the temple. It's done at the gates of the tabernacle. Everybody was going to know what was going on. This wasn't some private thing, hush, hush. No, this was going to be a public event. Everyone would know about it. And so therefore... Would a husband then want to expose his marital problems openly when, in fact, he couldn't actually know the results of what was going to happen? Because if she was found innocent, that makes him look like a jealous fool. Now, if it was true and she was guilty of it, okay, fine, that's one thing. But it, it's a warning. God is giving this warning. That's why, again, when you look, you, you can't find this law actually being applied in, in Scripture. There's no evidence that anyone actually ever applied this law. There's no evidence of a man taking his, his wife to the priest and this being done. But the law was there to protect her from the jealousy of a husband and thinking, hey, you know, I saw the way that guy was looking at you. I saw the way you were looking at the guy. It looked like you were flirting with that guy. It looked like he was flirting with you. Hey, and he goes into a jealous rage. Come on, guys, you know what I'm talking about. And so to protect her, not him, to protect her from stupid, jealous reaction and rage this law is put in to protect her he said god says all right if you really think that that happened this is what you're gonna have to do you're gonna have to take her before the priest publicly you're gonna have to do all of this right and then if it comes back that she is actually innocent what does that make you look like because if she's innocent this is on you buddy this is on you and so it was done to protect her. And this was, again, this was not just about the wife. It was, um, it said something about the husband as well. You know, yes, he could bring her and say, hey, I'm accusing her of, of this. But what does that say about the husband? What does it say about him in this matter, right? If, if this has happened, what is it saying about him? Has is, is, is he been treating her wrong? Has he been abusing her or something uh what does it say about him wait i thought and again understanding how when you when you look at at god's love and god is always trying to show his love to us through the 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 laws that he gives us and and what he tells us to do he's trying to show us his love so here you a guy says you know uh, i really love my wife and if i really love my wife yes she may have hurt me but i don't I'm not going to want to make a public example out of her. And so because he loves the wife and not wanting to make a public example out of her, and maybe it's right, maybe it's wrong, whatever, he's going to deal with that as the husband in a right way. Again, I think a great example of this is what happened with Joseph. 
what happens? Joseph finds out Mary's pregnant. It's not Joseph. So what does he do? Instead of bringing her public and doing all these different things and making a public example out of her, what does he do? He's, he's going to, I'm just going to, I'm going to deal with this myself. I'm going to put her away privately. I'm going to take care of her, but we're, we're not going to get married and I'm just going to take care of her. And God says, hey, Joseph, I want to let you know, nothing's happened. This is of God. She's going to have the son of God, right? And then that's when he goes ahead and takes her to be his wife, okay? Why? There was, there was a love from, from Joseph to Mary. There was a love there that even though, hey, it was very obvious she's pregnant, Joseph said, hey, I'm not, I'm not going to make a public example of her, right? Same thing in this passage when we look the public example really kind of shows a man that really does not love his wife, does not care about his wife. It's, again, nothing is proven. It's, it's just suspect. He suspects. He thinks that something has happened. And that's why he's doing this, to find out if it really is or not. Can I tell you, there, there, you got more problems than, than that. There, you're going to have to get back and you're going to have to figure out some, some marriage issues and, and go, go back to some ground roots here. If this is where it's leading, then there's, some, there's something else going on in the marriage. Okay? Um, and so when you look at that, again, it's just... Um, and, and if his suspicion was wrong, then think about this. Now he owes his wife a public apology. And now how is this relationship going to go now? Right? I mean, here he's publicly accused his wife of committing adultery and then it was found out she didn't commit adultery let me tell you something that's not going to be a happy home for a while and that's why again i say nowhere in scripture do you find this actually being applied it was a law that god had placed to protect the wife okay because again, you think about what was happening there. Just merely being suspected of adultery was enough justification in those days to be divorced or cast aside or left destitute. Okay? So this, 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 uh, this act here really declared a woman innocent by default. You know, we have the, the saying, innocent until proven guilty. That's what this was. She is innocent by default. Okay? The only way that she would be proven guilty is that God would have to supernaturally step in and say that she is guilty. And again, if you look at what happens by the drinking of the water, right? The water that you sprinkle a little bit of the dust from the, the temple. What, what is that, right? I mean, my, my kids have been playing in the mud and dirt and everything like that. They never got sick or anything, you know? I mean, what is it? It, it's, it was something, it was... Again, we, don't have, we can't go into all of the, the specific details of everything, but it was, this act was there to, to show that the wife is innocent until God supernaturally steps in and says, yes, I know that she committed adultery, and therefore, when she drank the water or whatever, then God would, you know, uh, what is he, how does he use the, the term here? The, 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 um, the thigh would rot and then the belly to swell so that now she's able to not have children, Okay. But this was all to protect her. It had nothing to do with protecting the husband. This was all to protect the wife from the jealousy of the husband and rash acts of accusations or suspect or anything like that. So, when, and again, I, I, this was just fascinating as I started kind of reading up on it and learning more about it, that this was all to protect her. She is innocent. You, you, you can make all the claims you want, but she is innocent by default until you're saying, okay, I'm going to take her publicly to the priest and before everybody that's ever going to see this, and I'm going to accuse her of committing adultery. And if she hasn't, oh boy, what does that make me look like? And so it's a protection for her. But nowhere in this passage... Nowhere does it ever give any indication or any teaching that this is somehow um, an abortion or miscarriage or something like this. No, not at all. This was to protect the innocent from these false, rash accusations. Okay? Um, 
And so I, I, thought it, that, I thought it was really interesting as I was reading up on that. Does that, does that help a lot? Right. Yeah, it's, it's, not the, it's not the dust and the water. It's not the water that's causing it. It's God stepping in and supernaturally saying, yes, this did happen. Um, Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. 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 And there, and there, there's, there's, you know, when you look at some of these other versions and things, they, um, whether it's this, and this was the first time I'd ever heard of that. Um, and again, this was just from the 2010 edition. Um, but there are other things that have, they've done in different versions and things like that. But, um, um, I was just getting ready to say something, and I forgot. Maybe it'll come back later. I don't know. Um, yeah. Um, anybody, else, anybody have anything else on that? Anything? Any question or anything about it? I thought it was really fascinating. Yeah, Greg. Well, I mean, yeah, just, just like that, you know. I mean, here's, you know, if, if they're bringing this up, say, you know what, this, this really isn't the, the right Bible to even get this out of because this is the only one that even translates it this way. None of the other versions translate it this way. Um, and that wasn't even till recent, you know, till 2010, that's just 12 years ago when they decided, I wonder why they decided 10, 12 years ago to all of a sudden change this now. It's interesting, you know? Um, so yeah. Right, yeah, if she was innocent, yeah. If she was innocent, then she would be able to conceive. If she was guilty, then she would not be able to conceive later on. That was, that was the curse that God would, had placed upon it. And again, to understand, you have to understand the culture of that day because you say, well, that's not a big deal. No, in that day, that was a huge deal. Child, being able to have children in that day and age was a huge deal, especially for a Jewish woman. Um, because again, you have to think, the promised Messiah was to come through a Jewish woman. And so not to be able to have children meant that you were, you, it was possible that you wouldn't be able to have a part in that somehow. Um, and so it was a very important thing, um, you know, especially for Jewish women to be able to have children. And so to have that curse that you would never be able to have children, uh, that, was, that was a serious thing to them. Very, very serious. Yeah. All right. Very good. That's great. Um, we got a little bit of time left, um, and someone had sent me this message, and um, I think we can deal with it in the, the time that we have left here. Let's see if I can find it. Um, Acts chapter 8. <laughs> Acts chapter 8. So in Acts chapter 8, verse number 5, it says, Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria, preached Christ unto them. The people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. Um, And then in verse number 12, it says, But when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God, the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So Philip goes down to Samaria. He's preaching, and uh, people are getting saved. Um, Philip baptizes them. But then in verse number 14, it says, Now when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. For as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of Jesus. Then laid they, uh, laid they their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost. Right? And so the question was, let me pull it back up here. Um, 
Why did the Holy Ghost come after them getting saved and baptized and the laying on of hands? Good question, right? Why did the Holy Ghost come after? If they're already saved, when Philip is preaching, they believe, right? And they get saved. Then why is it that then the apostles from Jerusalem, Peter and John, have to come and then they're able to receive the Holy Ghost? When does a person receive the Holy Ghost? What's that? When does a person receive the Holy Ghost? When they're saved, right? Uh, If you go to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. In verse number 13. He says, In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Right? So Paul tells us that as soon as a person receives the Lord Jesus Christ, they believe in Christ for salvation, that they receive the Holy Spirit of God. So if a person receives the Holy Spirit of God at salvation, and yet these in Acts chapter 8 were saved when Philip was preaching and they got saved, then why does it say they received the Holy Spirit later when Peter and John came down? Alex, I'll take Acts chapter 8 for 500, please. Maybe they weren't really saved. Well, it says they were saved. It says in verse 12, they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God, the name of Jesus Christ. They were baptized both men and women. So it says they believed and they got saved and then they got baptized. Rob? Well, I mean, do we need the apostles today to receive the Holy Spirit? Why would they need the apostles then to receive the Holy Spirit? (laughs) Yeah, Jenna? True. That's true. There are people that believe in God um, that are not saved, right? But again, when we look here at the passage, these are people that heard the preaching of the word of God. They receive Christ as their savior, right? They're, they're not just saying, I believe in God. They, they've received him. Look in verse 12. But when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, right? So they've put their faith in Christ. They've received Christ as their savior. Okay. So let me ask you a question. Let me, let me make it a little bit simpler for you. Okay. Here we go. Ready for this? Did they receive the Holy Spirit in verse number 12, or did they receive the Holy Spirit in verse number 14, or excuse me, 15? Did they receive the Holy Spirit in verse number 12, or did they receive the Holy Spirit in verse number 15? Okay. No. No. Brother Ross? Has it got something to do with Simon being a sorcerer? No. Greg? Between what? Jewish 
So the, the Jews receive the Holy Spirit different than the Gentiles? Is that what you mean? It's more of a visual? Okay. All right. Mom. Does that have to do with the signs? Hmm. What does it say in verse number 18? And when Simon, what's the next word? Saw that the Holy Ghost, or that through the laying on the apostles' hands, the Holy Ghost was given. Now, let me ask you a question. When a person accepts Christ as their Savior, can you, re- can you see them receive the Holy Spirit of God? You cannot, Right? So let me ask you the question again. Did these believers receive the Holy Spirit in verse 12 or in verse 15? What's the answer? The answer is yes. The answer is 12 and 15. They received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in verse number 12 when they believed, right? Again, it doesn't matter if you're Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter who you are. The very moment that a person accepts Jesus Christ as their Savior, they are immediately indwelt with the Holy Spirit of God. That's what we just saw in Ephesians chapter 1, right? The very moment that a person receives Christ, they are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. You don't see that, but it happens, say, well, how do you know it happens? Because God says it happens. God says it happens, right? And as the Holy Spirit begins to indwell you, you begin to see some changes taking place in your own life, right? The Holy Spirit starts saying, hey, that's not right. You shouldn't be doing that. Hey, you need to be in church. Hey, you need to be reading your Bible, right? The Holy Spirit begins to convict us, right? Because he's indwelling us now, okay? So if they receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in verse number 12, what did they receive then in verse number 15? Because it says, still says they received the Holy Spirit. Right, yeah, when a person puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you're immediately sealed and dwelt with the Holy Spirit of God. Ephesians 1.13, yes, sir. Yep, absolutely. I did. We're arguing about verse number 15. We're having a discussion, no arguments, discussions. Right. Which takes place in verse number 12 of chapter 8 of Acts. But verse number 15 of chapter 8 of Acts is something different. Yeah. Yes, I'm talking in Acts. Yes. Yes. Yeah, Ephesians 1.13 tells us exactly when a person receives the Holy Spirit of God. That's when they believed. Same thing. When a person receives Christ, that's they're putting their trust in Christ. So back in, back in chapter 8 of Acts, verse number 12. You there? Acts chapter 8, verse number 12. It says, But when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized both men and women. So when they believed they receive the Holy Spirit of God. Okay? We all together here? All right. So, but now watch, right? But then it says in verse number 14, now when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. No. Not what he's talking about here in verse number 15. Because if they have, 
If, if what has happened in verse number 15 has already happened, why are they praying for them to receive the Holy Ghost? Again, there's two things happening here. This is what, this is what I'm saying, right? Two things are happening here. In verse number 12, they've accepted Christ and they've received the Holy Spirit of God. But in verse 15, when the apostles lay their hands on them and pray for them, something else is happening at this time, all right? And that's why the, the key is in verse number 18, when they saw. Again, when you accepted Christ as your Savior, you, don't, you can't see the Holy Spirit indwell someone. But here, when the apostles laid their hands on them, something happened so that they were able to see the Holy Spirit coming upon them. Right? Yeah. Aaron? What's that? No, that's already taking place back up in verse number 12. Right? The conviction takes place back up in verse number 12. That's why they believed. Right? So what happens in verse number 15 has to do with, again, when Simon saw that through the laying on of hands, the, uh, the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money. This goes back to, uh, and again, this is kind of what my mom was going with here, is goes back to the sign gifts, right? How can someone know that a person has received the Holy Spirit of God? Because they had the sign gifts. Now again, please understand, the book of Acts is a transitional book, okay? What is happening in verse number 15 does not happen anymore. Now, it's still what we saw in verse number 12 still happens. When people believe, they receive the Holy Spirit of God. That still happens today. But what happens in verse number 15 does not happen anymore in that someone can, uh, the apostles could lay their hands on them and they would receive the power of the Holy Ghost to be able to do the sign gifts, those five gifts that were given to the apostles back in Mark chapter 16. What's that? Exactly, yeah, we don't have them anymore. But again, remember in, in Acts... This is, this is when it's all beginning. This is a transitional book, okay? And so just like what Brother Greg was saying, the Jews thought that salvation was just for them. They didn't think the Gentiles could be saved. That's why when you go later on, look in Acts chapter 10. In Acts chapter 10, what happens here? Peter, and I've got to do this in like three minutes, so we've got to go fast. Peter is sent to Cornelius, who was a Gentile, Cornelius believes, right? Cornelius believes, and while Peter spake these words in verse number 44, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word, and they of the circumcision which believed were astonished as many came with Peter because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. Again, there is the indwelling of the Holy Ghost, but then there was also the gift of the Holy Ghost that allowed them to have the sign gifts. Watch what happens. For they heard them speak with tongues. That was one of the sign gifts, speaking in tongues, right? And so when the, when the, when the Jews saw that these Gentile believers were speaking in tongues, just like they had done back on the day of Pentecost, they said, Wow. Gentiles must be able to get saved too. Gentiles are able to get saved too. Gentiles are able to have the Holy Spirit just like we can, right? And that's what was happening here in Acts chapter 8. They were believing and they had received the Holy Ghost when they believed in verse number 12. But then Peter and John come, they lay their hands on them, and they receive the sign gifts as well. And again, it doesn't tell us exactly what it was, but it was something that was visible, most likely, it was probably the speaking in tongues, okay? It doesn't say exactly, but it says that when Simon saw this, he saw something. He said, whoa, ho, ho, hey, I want that power. I want that power. I want to be able to do that, right? Because it wasn't just when they believed that they accepted Christ as their Savior and they received the Holy Spirit of God. That's already settled in verse number 12. But then the disciples, Peter and John, come. And by the way, and here's the thing. Peter and John, the disciples, this is why Philip couldn't do it, because the disciples were the only ones who could pass on the sign gifts. Now, did Philip have the sign gifts? Yes. What was he doing? He says, then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ, and the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. That's the sign gifts. He's performing miracles. Then why didn't Philip lay his hands on these people and give them the sign gifts? 
because he didn't have the power to do that. Only the apostles did. That's why, like you said, we don't need those anymore because, one, the apostles died and they can't give it to anybody. We don't have them anymore, right? And that's why Philip couldn't give the sign gifts to the people. That's why the apostles had to come from Jerusalem. Peter and John had to come because Philip didn't have the power to do it. It was only the original disciples, only the original apostles that had that ability. And that's why they had to come. That's why, again, Peter going to Cornelius, Peter is the one that had to do it, right? It wasn't just anybody, oh, I've got the gift. Oh, I've got the gift. No, no, no. It was the original disciples, the original apostles. They could give it to someone. I could give it to Brother Ross, but brother, if I was one of the original, I could give it to Brother Ross, but Brother Ross could not give it to anybody else. So guess what happens when the original 11 die off and the 12 counting Paul? Guess what happens? Nobody else can give it out anymore. And he couldn't give it to anybody anyway, so he can't give it out. Guess what happens to the sign gifts? They're all gone. So it wasn't that they hadn't gotten saved in verse number 12. No, they had gotten saved, but now it was Peter and John that came down to give them the signs to show that these in Samaria had also believed and had accepted Christ as their Savior. To show the Jews, hey, the Gentiles can be saved as well. It's not just for the Jews, it's for the Gentiles also, right? I know I had to do that really fast because we have to end at 6 o'clock because the kids have to come in and do the Christmas program. If I've confused you in any way, write it down. Write it down, right? And and what? And get his book, yeah. Uh, write it down, and uh, we'll talk about it next week. And, yeah, actually, by the way, if you want to know really any in, more information about that, uh, my dad wrote a book on uh, the charismatic movement, which is where the charismatics get all the sign gifts and everything like that. They got it totally out of whack. Uh, he wrote a book about it. You can get his book if you'd like. I think it's, what, six bucks? We'll charge you ten. That's no problem. Um, but <laughs> I'm just, just kidding. I'm just kidding. But they are back there in the little bookshelf there. So, all right. God bless you. You're dismissed. Uh, don't forget about the teacher worker meeting. Head over.